Let's hear what Pastor Phil has to say as he teaches us today from Revelation chapter 7. There are two temples. There's one in heaven, one on the earth. When we come to the millennial kingdom, of course, you have uh, a millennial temple that's going to be built, but, but you also have a temple in heaven. Uh, the temple in heaven is what the earthly tabernacle and temple were patterned after. So whatever you see in the tabernacle, in the way of the altar and of sacrifice and the labor where they washed and the and the holy place and the holy of holies and so on with the table of showbread and the menorah and so on. All of that really was a, a model of heaven. God gave that to Moses to build on the earth to represent a kind of a picture of heaven on the earth. And there is a temple in heaven and some debate well. Uh, do these folks serve God in heaven at the temple, or are they going to be on the earth serving him? Well, uh, I kind of believe that if this is talking about the millennial temple on the earth. They serve him day and night. There really is no day and night in heaven. Uh, I just believe that what's in view here is that during the millennial kingdom, these saints, who are not really a part of the church, and so they have a different relationship with God. They're, they're loved, they're saved. Don't get me wrong, but they're not the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ, the church, has a unique position in the world. Again, we reign with him. These folks serve God day and night in the temple. So, you know, not that it would be a bad thing to serve God day and night in his temple. It's just a different classification, different designation. Verse 16, they shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat for the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Well, that becomes very significant when you again remember, where did these folks come out of? Great Tribulation. They didn't take the mark of the beast. That meant they couldn't buy or sell. That meant that they probably starved to death, many of them. They knew cold, hunger, at one point, the the, earth, the sun kind of goes into a nova status in chapter 16, verse 9, and scorches men upon the earth. And if they were alive at that point, some of them uh, experienced that as well. So when the Lord promises them, they'll neither hunger nor thirst. Of course, the tears, watching your loved ones be slaughtered by the Antichrist. You know, I didn't grow up during World War II. But I sometimes think how it must have been for those folks to live through that, the Jewish people and, and others who were Jewish sympathizers. What, what would it be like, I mean, to be ripped from your home in the middle of the night and, and your parents sent off to death camps? And, and, and I mean, what would that be like? What kind of a life would that be? These folks have gone through horrendous events 
that led to their ultimate death, martyrdom. And now they're standing before the Lord, and Jesus promises them they're never going to thirst again. They're never going to hunger. They're never going to cry. They're going to always be with the Lord. He will be with them forever. He will never leave them. He will be their shepherd who will watch over them and protect them and provide for them. That's got to be a great comfort. Well, verse 1 of chapter 8, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. J. Vernon McGee told a story about how that he was walking through, uh, he was uh, at a conference and uh, it was a kind of a, uh, a retreat center somewhere. And he saw a whole group of girls coming, and they were really agitated. And there was one guy in the middle of the group. And they came walking by Dr. McGee. And the girl said, you got to talk to him. You know, and McGee said, well, what, 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 what's going on? Don't tell him what you said, they said to the guy. Well, I just said that there were not going to be any women in heaven. <laughs> McGee said, where, where did you get that from? Well, it says here in Revelation chapter 8, verse 1, there was silence for half an hour. <laughs> There can't be any women in heaven, he said. McGee said, son, you got a lot to learn. I don't, I don't subscribe to that, but I thought I'd throw it out. But I want you to think about this. Think about all the angels and the elders and the cherubim and the seraphim that we have been introduced to in chapters 4 and 5. Think of all the voices in heaven that have been proclaiming God's goodness, that have been singing His praises. Up until this point, the billions upon billions upon billions of beings, both angelic and glorified earthly believers, who are in heaven singing God's praises, falling down and worshiping Him. I mean, it must be thunderous to hear all these people worshiping God and praising Him, and the four living creatures around the throne constantly going, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And all of a sudden it all stops in a deafening silence for about a half hour. Talk about a dramatic pause. That's quite a dramatic pause. And it's going to mark the transition, I think, from tribulation into great tribulation. I think it's going to signify God shifting His wrath into high gear from the day of the Lord into the awesome and terrible day of the Lord judgments upon the earth, which will take place during the second half of the tribulation period. But know this, these trumpet judgments which eventually then lead to the bold judgments of God's wrath that we'll read about later on, are going to finally bring an end to man's rebellion and to the evil of this present age. So you have to understand something. I mean, as a Jew, you were always brought up believing that this was a present evil age of man's rebellion. And if you're Jewish... You know, you know how the Jews have been persecuted throughout history. And so it just they just their whole life was a reminder of the evil in the heart of man, the rebellion against not only God, but the people of God, the Jewish people. But they were taught that someday Messiah was going to come. And when he came, he was going to bring a new age, a kingdom age, an age of righteousness and peace and so on. And so we have to understand that all these judgments are going to be leading up to the kingdom age. And and really, even though it looks pretty black and bleak right now, that God has a purpose in all this. 
He is again judging the rebellious, the usurpers, those earth dwellers who refuse to honor and worship God. And and he's dealing with them. He's purging the earth in preparation for Christ to come and to take control. But I want you to understand this. During these judgments, the Holy Spirit is going to be at work using these events, these horrific events, to bring millions and millions and, I believe, millions of people to Jesus Christ during this tribulation period because God loves them and wants to do everything in His power to bring them into salvation. Habakkuk talks about the judgment of God. And in talking about the judgment of God that's coming upon the world, he said, Lord, in wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk 3, verse 2. In your wrath, Lord, please remember mercy. And don't you know that's exactly the character of our God? You know, it's in God's nature to show mercy rather than judge. We think, well, some people think, that God just sits up in heaven waiting to judge. He loves to judge. He just can't wait to smash us. And that is so wrong. That is so contrary to God's true nature. The Bible says that God is a God of mercy. God delights in showing mercy. God would rather show mercy than judge. But there is a time that comes when mercy comes to an end and God has to judge those who refuse to repent. But during this time, as God is bringing these judgments, and of course the hard-hearted, they just stiffen their hearts all the more. We're going to read about that. Where we, we come to passages that say in Revelation, and after all that God just did in pouring out judgment, yet they refused to soften their hearts. They were defiant against God. Now that's going to be probably a good number of people that will wind up going to hell because they refuse to, you know, to repent. But through the course of these judgments, a lot of other people, they are going to come to Christ. Coupled with the ministry of the 144,000, which J. Vernon McGee says, I want to just tell you this, he said, that they're going to do more in seven years than the church has done in 1900 years in reaching the lost. And that's because the Spirit of God is going to be heavily upon them. And let's face it, when God begins to remove all the luxuries and the comforts people tend to turn to God a lot quicker, don't they? I mean, we're in the age of grace. And we got a lot of nice luxuries and comforts, especially in this country. We, are, we live in a, t- a time in this nation where we, we have so much prosperity that why should people turn to God? they got everything they want right now. If God started taking some of that away, you might start seeing churches get a little full. And I think God's going to do that on a worldwide scale. He is going to start bringing judgment. There's going to be all kinds of famine comforts that's a thing of the past you're just going to want to survive at this point and people are going to start coming to jesus i believe uh, in droves verse two and i saw seven angels who stand before god and to them were given seven trumpets now apparently all of this happens in rapt silence as all of heaven is just speechless just Silent, waiting to see what was going to happen when these seven angels begin to blow these trumpets of judgment. What's going to happen on the earth? All of heaven, silent. These seven angels step up to the throne of God, and God gives to each of them a trumpet. But it's all done, apparently, in silence. Now, trumpets, I think, would have been significant to John because he was Jewish. 
trumpets were very much a part of Israel's national life. In fact, according to Numbers chapter 10, you don't have to turn there, but trumpets had three important uses. First of all, they called people together. They, they announced an assembly. They announced war, and they announced special times. There was trumpets that sounded at Mount Sinai when the law was given. Uh, trumpets were blown when a new king was anointed and enthroned. And, of course, we all know one of the classic stories of how trumpets came into play was the story of Jericho, right? How God used those trumpets as a conquest of Jericho. So, for warfare. And I believe that's exactly what they mean here. This is not a call, you know, this is not a call to an assembly. That's the rapture, the trump of God. Don't confuse that trump with the seventh trump here. We'll talk about that more when we get there. But I believe these trumpets signify God pouring out wrath, his war against rebellious mankind. You know, there's a lot of people that only want to focus on God's goodness, his grace, his love. Do you know that in the scriptures it, it says specifically that the Lord is a man of war? And that he actually has a book where he has written all of the wars he has taken part of. It's called the book of the wars of the Lord. Check it out. The Lord is not a pacifist. And the Lord is going to war against his enemies. And I think we see it beginning right here. Not that he hasn't already been judging, but now he's going to kick it into high gear. And so we see now these trumpets and, and these seven angels. And John says, I saw the seven angels who stand before God. Definite article. This seems to be a special group of angels. These seven seem to belong to a higher class, uh, an elite group. Possibly they are archangels. You know, the word ark in the Greek means first superior, sometimes used of a ruler. These angels, if they are archangels, they're a higher class or ranking of angels than other angels. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul divided the whole angelic realm into the ranks of a hierarchy when he classified angels in these groups. He said they're principalities and powers and thrones and dominions. That's just Paul's way of saying there is different ranks of angels in heaven. And, of course, in the demon world as well. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, he said, but against principalities and powers, right? So he's talking about demonic hierarchies too. But the Bible teaches us that in the angelic realm, there are different classes or rankings of angels. And archangels seem to be way up there. I don't know if they're number one, but they're pretty high up. These seven seem to be, we'll say, God's special forces, all right, that stand right there by the throne of God and wait to be dispatched by God on personal missions from the king himself, a personal liaison to the God of heaven to do his bidding. And, and we know of two archangels, right? We know the names of two of them, Michael and Gabriel, right? And we don't know a lot about them. But Michael is called an archangel in Jude, verse 9. He is called the great prince in Daniel 12, verse 1. He is also called one of the chief princes in Daniel 10, verse 13, indicating that there are other chief princes or archangels in heaven. We don't know how many. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 7, it tells us 
that he is the commanding officer over a vast heavenly army of angelic beings and he might not be the only one he might have a group that he's over and gabriel might have a group of angels that he's over they are like commanding officers arche could me it could me mean ruler in the sense that they are in charge of those angels they each probably have uh, an army of angels assigned to them now gabriel is not really called an archangel in scripture directly but i personally think he's definitely one I believe that because all we have to do is look at how how he identifies himself to Mary. Remember now when he appeared to Mary in Luke chapter 1? He says to her in Luke 1 verse 19, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. If you compare that to Revelation 8 verse 2, and I saw seven angels who stand before God, we get the idea that Gabriel is one of these seven angels. And they all could be archangels. We don't know the names of the other five. Um, They're not mentioned in Scripture by name. Jewish tradition, quoting from the apocryphal books of Tobit and Enoch, uh, gives the possible names of four of them, uh, Raphael, Uriel, Sarachiel, and Raguel. But these are apocryphal books. We don't know. Uh, We don't even know if they're archangels. But we do know this. They must be a special group that stands in God's presence to do his bidding. Well, verse 3. Then another angel, not of the seven, another angel having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. Remember I told you that in heaven there's a temple. And the earthly temple was a model of the heavenly temple. Well, in the earthly temple, or the tabernacle before it, when you walk into the holy place, right before the curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant sat, was a golden altar of incense, where the priest would come and he would burn incense, which represented the prayers of the saints, and they would ascend to heaven as a a sweet aroma in the nostril of God. So here we see the actual heaven golden altar, all right, that the one on earth was a model of. And it says that this angel took a golden censer and he filled it with much incense and mixed it with the prayers of the saints and so on. And he winds up tossing this thing to the earth, which is going to create some problems for the people of the earth. But you say, well, what are these prayers? Okay. Of course, incense in the scripture is a um, symbol for prayer. But, But what are these prayers? Well, I think they're a combination of things, really. Remember we said that prayers don't really evaporate or disintegrate when you offer them to God. We learn in chapter 5, I believe, that when you offer prayers to God, they ascend to His throne like a sweet incense. Uh, the psalmist said that. And God gathers them, and He puts them in bowls as a kind of a keepsake. But they also remain in His active box. In other words, even if we lose heart and give up praying... All the prayers that we have prayed up until that time, they're in the presence of God. Now, this would go would also mean that all the prayers ever prayed by the people of God in the Old Testament and the New have never disintegrated, evaporated, gone out of existence. And they have remained in God's active box. And the ones I'm thinking of primarily are in the Old Testament, the precatory prayers, imprecatory. What does that mean? 
we, we see this in the Psalms. There are uh, imprecatory Psalms, and they contain some imprecatory prayers. These are prayers of judgment. When David prayed, Lord, smash their teeth, you know, break their skull, uh, smash their bones. That was an imprecatory prayer. God, get them. Judge them. Get them, Lord. See, now in the New Testament, we, we have been called to, you know, love our enemies and pray for them and so on. So we're not supposed to be praying imprecatory prayers. However, Jesus told us to pray this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you realize that when you pray that, that's a Christian version of an imprecatory prayer? Because what's going on is when you pray for the kingdom of God to come, the kingdom of God can't fully come until the enemies of God are judged. Now, we're not praying that they would be judged directly. We just want God's kingdom to come. But it's implied. And if you mix that with the prayers of the people, remember the fifth seal in chapter 6? Uh, Revelation 6, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. So these are believers who have been killed during the first half of the tribulation. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So the church age is over. Now we're getting back to those imprecatory prayers. Because the day of wrath has really come. And then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed or martyred as they were was completed. All right? God says to these saints, they were also tribulation saints, Lord, how long before you avenge our blood on the people on the earth? Lord says, chill out a little bit longer. There's still a lot more that have to be added to your number. Okay? We come to chapter 7. We read in verse 9, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. Well, we know that these are tribulation saints from verse 14. And it seems at this point the number has been fulfilled. Where God said that they said, how long before you judge the world, Lord? Before you really start getting the judgments flowing. And God says, not until the number of all those other brethren of yours, those martyrs, is fulfilled. Well, it appears now that that number has been fulfilled. And God is now going to, to be kicking it into high gear you might say, with regard to his wrath. Verse 4, And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth, and there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. Now, I want you to understand this. John says the pause in heaven seemed like how long? Half hour. That doesn't mean it was a half hour on the earth. One day to the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. So the time in heaven is not like time on the earth. What seemed to be a half hour for John in heaven could have been days or weeks or maybe even months on the earth. 
Dr. Henry Morris, who has also written a great commentary on Revelation, says that after the events of the sixth seal, everything suddenly on earth becomes quiet. And to the people of this earth, it seems that maybe all is over. The worst is past. He says, after these few terrifying days, the stars stopped falling and the terrible shakings ceased. The survivors emerged from their shelters and began again to rationalize their resistance to God. After all, these awful calamities could be explained scientifically, so perhaps they had been too quick to attribute them to God's wrath. They quickly set about rebuilding their damaged structures and became more resolute than ever in their opposition to the gospel of Christ. You know how man is. We saw it with 9-11, didn't we, on a smaller scale? Boy, churches were full that next Sunday, and maybe a Sunday or two after that, and then pretty much everyone went back to the status quo. And so people of this world are very resilient when it comes to God's conviction. For a while there, they were terrified, and maybe some of them were thinking about repenting. Now there's quiet, calm. Well, I guess it's all we're with, you know? You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him day by day. day, by day.